Welcome back to the show, everybody. The Professional Services Pursuit, a podcast featuring expert advice and insights on the professional services industry. My name is Matt Finch, and my guest today is John Ragsdale, distinguished researcher and vice president of technology ecosystems at TSIA. John, amazing to have you on the show. I can't believe we managed to secure you as a guest on our show. I'm absolutely delighted. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Matt, it's great to be here. It's a fun topic and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, fan- fantastic. And it's funny, whenever I hear of, of TSIA, I, I think of just the industry experts that you guys, I mean, talk about thought leaders in the space, right? And I encourage any of our listeners, you know, if you don't know TSIA, absolutely look them up. Technology and Services Industry Association, follow them, join them, become members, learn from them, just an amazing resource, um, you know, uh, for, for the services industry. So John, we're delighted to have you on, on the show today. You know, really, our, our topic is, is going to be around this concept concept of the networked economy, the liquid workforce. And these are terms I'm going to ask you to help us kind of define as we go through. But John, you know, as, as we've gone through COVID, you know, Touchwood, fingers crossed, coming out the other side and kind of emerging in, in this new world, help me just define initially what you would say the networked economy is, especially in the, con- the, the, the construct of, of now COVID and what that means to the world and all of the flexibility that's now required. We noted, by the way, 50, a 57% increase in the use of freelancers since COVID started, which is pretty incredible. But let's just take a few steps back. Networked economy, liquid workforce, talk us through that from your perspective. Perspective as a thought leader in this space? Well, I, I know it's sort of a new concept, uh, especially when we're looking at professional services and consultants. Tr- traditionally, this has either been owned employees or subcontracting through uh, companies that you had a great relationship with. Um, but whether you call it liquid workforce, freelancers, on-demand workforce, gig workers, whatever you want to call it, uh, I think the reality is this is becoming a, a much more common paradigm uh, and definitely will in the future. Uh, so I recently had an opportunity to interview uh, Joseph Fuller, who's a professor mm-hmm. of management practice at Harvard Business School. He's also cool. the co-chair of their uh project on managing the future of work. And he recently published a study building the on-demand workforce in partnership with Boston Consulting Group. And they surveyed 700 senior business leaders at U.S. firms uh, about their use of an on-demand workforce, uh, any familiarity they had with these new emerging digital talent platforms, which is, uh, I'll talk more about that later, but I think that's really the, the key to doing this successfully. And a couple of findings from that report is 40% of the executives they interviewed have already used these digital talent platforms to find highly skilled workers. And that's what the, the focus of this study, not on you know Uber drivers, but mm. on highly skilled people that had a certain skill set or competencies, industry experience, et cetera. And 90% of the executives said that they saw uh, that these talent platforms would either be somewhat or very important to their future competitive advantage. So companies understand um, the the need to scale. And the other uh, 
data point from that survey I'll bring up is that 60% of the executives said it was highly likely or somewhat likely that they would reduce their owned employees and increase their on-demand talent moving forward. Whether they've acted on this or not, um, I think that they recognize that there are a number of trends uh, taking place here. Uh, and, you know, as you said, there's some big challenges uh, to this model, but there's also some, some huge opportunities too. Amazing. So, uh, I mean, the concept of, of freelancers, contractors, gig workers, whatever the new terminology might be, you know, certainly the, the term gig workers has, has been more recent. Liquid workforce, networked economy is one is, is fra- phraseology we're seeing now. But the concept of freelancers and contractors has been around for decades longer right you know it's just yeah. somebody that wants to be available to more than just one employer on a on a contract style basis you turn up you do a job you get paid and then you move on to the next one um so do you think covid's been a real driver of that or was this coming anyway well there's a there's a number of of trends are, around this i think covid has accelerated this because even companies that had never done any experimentation with remote workers or um, contract workers have had to figure out a way to make home-based remote workers successful. And what we are seeing in a, a lot of news reports right now is that workers really like this model. They don't want to go back to the nine to five office job. And if that's something that's going to be required by their employers, um, they're going to look for alternatives. And this gig approach really appeals to them because it gives them a very flexible work schedule. If they want to pound out 80 hours a week and then take three months off and go to Europe, they can do that. So, you know, our surveys uh, told us that after uh, COVID-19, 97% of our member companies who are all B2B tech companies said that they intend to keep delivering some professional services remotely that were previous delivered on site. So they, they see that this is going to be a reality. So a couple of other trends that were already at place before the pandemic. The first thing is younger workers just have a very different attitude toward, you know, how they want to work. And there's a lot of studies about millennials. One said that 91% of millennials expect to stay in a job for less than three years. They'll have 15 to 20 jobs over the course of their working lives. So this is a huge difference from baby boomers mm. and other generations who are the senior people in companies where, you know, we were taught that you get a degree, you get a, a job at a company, you work your way up and you stay there till you retire. And yes. younger workers, millennials and, and Gen Z are just not interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing is that tech companies are constantly expanding into new industries, new geographies. Fees. I mean, is there any tech company that does not now have a healthcare vertical <laughs> after the last year and the huge amount of, of spending Absolutely. going on in, in healthcare? And, yes. you know, as you start opening offices in far flung regions of the world and you start going after more industries that you don't have a lot of expertise in, just having the right expertise becomes much more challenging. And, you know, here I'm in in Silicon Valley, and I know companies that have open recs Mm -hmm. for consultants open for a year or more, because it's a very competitive market. Uh, Attrition is high. 
and filling those slots is is really really difficult so as you start needing new skills new industry expertise people in certain geographies where you don't have a lot of brand identity moving to this contractor uh, liquid workforce concept really makes sense yeah and an, another trend that I think is really important to this is, you know, if we look at professional services a decade ago, 80% or more of the projects were custom pay-as-you-go projects. Mm -hmm. But as we see companies shift from on-premise to the cloud, uh, we start seeing many more projects are fixed-price predefined projects and a lot of cloud companies you know when you buy it you get a implementation option a b or c so there, there's not a lot of custom work yeah. anymore and currently 53 percent of all professional services projects uh, according to our benchmark data uh, are now fixed price predefined and obviously these predefined repeatable projects can be very well documented so every time you complete one you capture your lessons learned your best practices, the library of customization code. So there's really less training and expertise required to execute these projects. And that means that these projects are really ripe um, to go to some of these crowdsourced resources because they don't need three months of training in order to to be effective. Mm. So, you know, I think it's fair to say there were some early approaches to crowdsourcing tech projects. Uh, There was a a startup, which I I won't mention because a friend of mine was head of products there, uh, that was really very early on. And, you know, some of those were let's be honest, kind of a disaster. And, you know, very often they would just put projects out for you to bid on and people that didn't have the right skills were bidding and getting projects and it didn't turn out so well. But, you know, that's where those (laughs) digital talent platforms come in because they eliminate the risk because you give them a hiring profile, the skills you need, the languages you need to speak, the code requirements, the products they've got to have expertise on, and they will find those workers for you uh, and they take care of the payments the paperwork the w-2s and and all of that so you know i think uh, a lot of executives may have had some poor experiences with early approaches to this but you know if you haven't checked out where this industry is i I would say spend some time looking at the options because it definitely is much lower risk than it used to be yeah, I think it's a, a really interesting point around that that solution space that you mentioned. I mean, you know, without re- revealing too much about my how old I am, you know, I remember the days of floppy disks in Drive, writing bunch of you know tons of code, sat in a freezing cold server room on a Saturday afternoon, up, up uh, upgrading a system, um, and I ju- I just remember the. Um, the, the the margin erosion that we had based on the fact that these solutions were entirely custom versus the ones now where you can just pick up a module, pick up a, uh, a, a, a pre-packaged solution, you know, and then deliver it within a certain amount of time. And this kind of move to SaaS, I think, has really driven that because they are designed to be more product-led than solution-led, um, even though many SaaS solutions are hugely customizable. But, um, you know, I think a lot of companies have gone through that 
early kind of digital transformation maybe in the late 80s early 90s figured out that you know what worked and what didn't these enormous on-premise projects that they used to do you've got to be you know on the ground you know boots on the ground versus you know i can be wherever i want to be in the world delivering a certain package to this company and i've got a skill set and i put myself on the marketplace i deliver that solution and i move on to the next one i think it's a really fascinating change from a technology perspective but also the way that the workforce is responding to that and i think that there's definitely a you know that generational shift is really interesting between those two generations and uh, you know bringing people along for the ride for the for, and for into the new world i think is super fascinating just a quick question based on something you mentioned there you know if you are that tech company that's had their job requisition open for a year and you can't find it how does someone stay competitive is it purely just a money thing do we just need to pay you know offer more money and someone will come along or is it a different thing what kind of things would attract the right person these days to that open requisition that's been there for a year well, most of the companies I see, you know, again, here in Silicon Valley is they were requiring that you were here, that you were in the office five days a week, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, COVID broke all of those assumptions. And so, mm. you know, if you've got recs sitting open, if you're requiring if you're only recruiting from a very particular region and there's an expectation that they're going to spend some or all of their time in the office, you're going to have to throw that out the window because, you know, what we've seen here in the Bay Area is a lot of people who were paying ridiculous real estate prices because they had to be within commuting distance mm. of their their employer have all you know moved to the midwest or someplace else a lot of people move to tahoe where you can get a lot more real estate Mm -hmm. for your money and you can work anywhere so you know again i think companies that are clinging to some of those old paradigms about owned on-premise employees are are gonna have to change um, their ideas because there's some amazing talent out there but they're not they're not within an hour of your office and they're not going to drive into work every day. Yes. Yeah. And they're not going to want to pay Silicon Valley prices to, to live and, and, you know, cost of living um, and tax implications, of course, as well. I mean, you know, we, we see a, a, an interesting migration to, you know, certainly states uh, in, in the United States that have, you know, different tax implications for people as well. So I can pay less tax, pay, you know, get a bigger house for my money and do the same job and be paid the same and deliver the same service and value to the company that I'm working for. I think it's, you know, it's a really interesting prospect, but also, and maybe this is me being old school i think there is an element that that people miss of that human connection you know physically being in an office you've got to be prepared at some point to still go back to an office work with people face to face and just kind of get stuff done i think that that balance is really there and 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 we've spoken before about um you know how you you can't go to too much of the extreme you can't go and bury yourself in greenland in a hut somewhere and as long as you've got an internet connection you can work you still need that you know that human connection and that ability to travel and and see and meet people too so would would you tend to agree with that or do you think it's all going completely remote and no one's going to be in a head office ever again (laughs) well i you know i've worked from home since 2003 so i i'm a big believer in Mm. in distance work however my company still has uh kickoff every year and we all get together in the same rooms and 
the amount of networking and knowledge sharing and collaboration that go on and just relationship building that you do face-to-face, I don't think you can ever Mm -hmm. replicate that 100%. We've been doing our conferences virtually now for a couple of years. We've got our first in-person conference in Vegas coming up in a few weeks. and I'm looking forward to it, John. I can't wait. The the members are like (laughs) chomping at the bit. Yeah. And I've just just missed that. And just seeing Mm -hmm. those people and shaking those hands and having those one-on-one conversations in the hallway that... Yes, you technically can have the experience in a virtual world, but it's missing a lot of quality there. And I, yeah. I just, yeah, uh, I think the opportunities for the, the in-person, do we need it 100%? No. Can we use it for strategic conversations? Yes. But yeah, I, I don't think we're ever going to get away from it completely think that you're you're spot on with that uh, with that notion of you just can't replace that that in-person stuff and i think that balance is really what's gonna drive um the success of this moving forward you have to be um flexible you have to uh, allow for the skills and and the people and the resources to be anywhere in the world but also encourage and and and, and cultivate a mindset and a culture that says it's still great to meet with people and and, and be in person and i think that balance is really important I think especially in a subscription economy, you know, you've got to be building these very strong relationships with customers. And even if you can do 90% of an implementation remotely, having some in-person contact with especially your strategic accounts is really critical because it builds that stickiness from the beginning. Mm. And whether it's with the implementation team or a customer success manager or whomever, having some face-to-face contact contact really increases the stickiness of that relationship and ultimately is going to impact long-term ability to do expand selling and renewals and rapid, mm. more rapid adoption. It just builds so much credibility. So it, it, while I do think that most projects and implementations can be primarily done remotely, you know, I hope that we're going to keep some on-premise component to doing some of the strategic mapping and understanding what's really unique about each customer because you, you, you can't lose that completely. Fantastic. So, you know, just kind of moving topics here for a second, you know, a lot of companies are going to be pretty hesitant to move to this kind of large scale on demand liquid workforce. You know, certainly the more modern tech companies would, would find this maybe an easier uh, an easier path to take. But maybe if you've been um, around for a while, you've been through lots of different styles and cultures of workforce, and now you're in this new world, you know, what would you as a, uh, you know, as kind of a thought leader and advisor here, give as some advice or certainly next steps that any firm could take in exploring this idea of the uh, the on-demand workforce? Well, again, referencing the, the Harvard study, part of the interviews and survey work they did was understanding what the challenges were to moving to this uh, sort of paradigm. And there's a lot that you expect. They worry about how do we effectively manage dispersed teams? How do we onboard freelancers uh, effectively? There's the risk of sharing your intellectual property with a gig worker who's probably doing Mm -hmm. projects for your competitor as well. But the single biggest barrier that they found was that executives saw the potential for this 
the frontline workers want the model, but the middle management, the the frontline managers are just not open to the idea. And it's the all we've always done it this way, and they're very resistant mm. to change. And you know, having spent the last decade working with tech companies on digital transformation, I don't want to pick on middle management here, but it's really a common theme. The executives have this vision. The the younger workers are anxious to do anything new and different and try new approaches, mm-hmm. but middle management drags their feet on 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 giving way. So, you know, I think first of all, uh Managers need to understand that these new approaches to staffing are absolutely required if they're going to scale. And with the constant increase in product complexity, you know, you need new and greater skills all the time. Every release has more AI embedded into it. Like I said, you may be going after healthcare and you suddenly need people with a lot of domain expertise working with healthcare companies and HIPAA compliance, which definitely most companies don't know that much about. You know, I think Mm -hmm. if you present them with you know, not only the business case for doing it, but also they can understand the new approaches to finding and recruiting and training that talent, um, they'll get, get over some of those concerns. But change management's hard. Yeah, absolutely. I almost feel like it's uh, there's a cultural change management as much as anything else. I mean, a huge part of change management really is, is the people, of course. But, you know, if you've got, got kind of, you know, that middle management set you know more stuck in their ways and and more hesitant to adopt you know i feel like that's the group to tackle first you know you, you've got to make sure that those those folks are on board you know with the vision and and, and with the uh, the culture of the new workforce so yeah super interesting so in terms of training and onboarding in particular i think is an interesting topic because so many companies have long and let's say maybe arduous onboarding processes for brand new employees and sometimes they are you know wonderful cultural experiences and other times they are dreadful classroom experiences where you sit there for weeks and weeks and and just get kind of fire hydrant style you know what would be an approach to onboarding a freelancer especially if they're on a fairly short-term project how would you approach that I think you're right. And if we're honest with ourselves, tech companies have traditionally not been very good at onboarding, especially remote workers. And this was one of the biggest challenges in the early days of COVID-19 is they were hiring people and they had always flown them into the corporate office for a month to train them. And they suddenly couldn't do that. And they didn't have the systems. They didn't have the skills. So, you know, we've had to figure that out. And so I'm hoping that it's not such a big roadblock um, as it has been in the past. And, you know, you were you talked about the importance of culture and building a knowledge sharing collaborative culture is not an easy thing to do. But if this is going to work, it's absolutely got to be a part of it because these gig workers want to feel that they're a part of the company. They're a part of the team. They don't view themselves as some pay for hire person that's not engaged with you. They feel that they're a valuable part of your company. And if you can't make them feel that, they're probably not going to want to do a lot of work for you. So, you know, I think if you're looking at how you should onboard these folks, clearly this has been an issue for a while at one of our Vegas events a couple of years ago, I did a a breakfast tabletop discussion on multiple generations in the workplace. And one of the members Mm -hmm. said that they were having a real issue bringing new talent in for professional services 
because traditionally it took three months of training before you could do your first project. And these young workers were saying, if I can't be on a project my first week on the job, I don't want to work here. I'm not going to spend three months learning yeah. before I actually get to do something. The old way of doing things mm-hmm. had already reached reached its limit. But, you know, I was talking about the fact that more projects are predefined, fixed price, repeatable. And if you're doing a good job of capturing lessons learned, best practices, creating project plans that are incredibly detailed, these are really good things that you can give to contractors to do. They've got a playbook, um, they've got a blueprint, they've got a roadmap. They can execute that without having you know weeks and weeks of, of training. But the key here is that They've got to have an open line to ask questions. So if they don't know how to do something, they can't sit frustrated and feeling isolated. They've got to have a buddy they can call or a manager they can call or some open communication and some collaboration platform. I mean, you guys have a, a collaboration platform as, as part of your PSA offering, and mm, that's yeah. really critical that there's got to be a way you can just throw questions and suggestions and ideas out there, and people are going to be collaborating with you. So, you know, I think if you create that sort of culture of knowledge sharing and collaboration, and you're doing a good job of creating those uh, execution plans for projects, it really shouldn't take three months to get, you know, one of these freelancers <laughs> up to speed. Hopefully you can give them a, a week's worth of overview, let them play in a test environment and get started. And I think that talks back to your earlier point of those middle managers, you know, the people responsible for the looking after and helping these people execute their daily lives and and the activities that they've been brought on to execute. That's why those middle managers are so important because we've got to adapt and change to, it should probably just be a week's onboarding and not the traditional two months that everybody's used to to doing. And, you know, whilst the executive might give you the the go ahead to hire a, you know, a freelance or, or gig economy, economy worker actually you've got to be prepared to change the way that and change the culture of the team to to adapt uh, and adopt that person i think that's a really really interesting point the the other thing that i just kind of picked up on there a little bit as well was you know this concept of of a a networked economy worker a gig economy worker having a different relationship with the company from a financial perspective and from a contractual perspective but not from a cultural perspective they should be part of the team as you know and it doesn't matter in the background how they're paid or how they bill their time or how what their you know sort of financial relationship is with the organization when they're part of a team executing on a project if you are a permanent employee a a gig worker that's there for a a year or a gig worker that's there for a week doing a job that relationship that culture should be the same right it shouldn't be any different yeah and and that's a big change for for tech companies i mean i i worked for a number of crm vendors and we would bring in like a language expert to create the the multilingual version of our, our software, and boy, they were ostracized. They sat in a different little cubicle. They didn't go to lunch mm, with us. Yep. We didn't even know their name <laughs> usually. They were not part of the team, and that was yep. not a great experience for them. It probably didn't ultimately mm, create mm. great multilingual versions of our software for our customers, <laughs> but younger workers today, the way they approach work, and whether they're a permanent employee or they're just signed on to do a project, 
project, they view themselves as a part of the team and one of your coworkers. And if they don't feel that love, you know, it's they're not going to stick around for long because they want to feel yep. valued and appreciated and get to work and help you be successful. Make that happen. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's kind of back to that cultural element of it doesn't matter what relationship you have. It, it's someone that's part of the team. Yeah. Very good. Uh, John, you know, what should companies be looking out for in the future? What plans do they need to, to be putting in place to be prepared? You know, is there going to be another bubble to burst? You know, what are the trends that you're seeing and that you're forecasting heading into 2022 that um, somebody that's working with the networked economy is going to have to engage with? Talk to us about the future, John. Get your crystal ball out. Um, Tell me the lottery numbers for this weekend and give me your trends for the future in the services world. Well, there's been so much gloom and doom about tech spending and the long-term impacts of the pandemic on the tech industry. And boy, I'm just, I'm just not seeing it. I do an annual mm. technology survey of our members every year looking at adoption and planned spending of key technology across professional services, support, education services, customer success. And boy, last year we saw the highest planned spending I had ever seen in the 15 years I've been doing the surveys. And the reality is a lot of companies, well, they eliminated their travel budget, they eliminated their events budget, and they had extra money and they started plugging it into infrastructure. So they started attacking a lot of upgrading and bringing in some new tools that they had been putting off. And uh, the 2021 surveys are open right now, and I'm hoping to release uh, Mm -hmm. those results uh, in a couple of weeks. And again, I'm seeing very high planned spending. I'll give you an example, professional services automation adoption went from like 72% last year to 85% this year. So 85% of tech companies have adopted PSA, but 55% of them saying they're planning an additional investment in the next one to two years. So, you know, there's a a lot of tech spending. And I think that um, we've seen uh, some pent up demand finally coming to reality. Uh, Pipelines are big. So, you know, I think there's a lot of of growth out there. But bringing it back to this topic, I think if you're in professional services, one of the things you need to do a better job of is resource forecasting. And when I interview people about why they have purchased professional services automation, one of the most common reasons is revenue forecasting because, you know, now they've got a number Mm. and they've got to hit that number and they want a better understanding of what projects uh, are being uh, quoted to customers, what's the likelihood of closure, how much revenue, but also they're getting more visibility into what is being positioned because very often, you know, sales sells what's easy to sell may, may not be what you want them to sell. And the more advanced (laughs) insight you get into that, you can do better coaching about maybe pushing the projects that you want to sell, which are probably more revenue, better margins, better. Yes. But along with doing that revenue forecasting, you also need to do the resource forecasting. And I see a lot of companies not doing that. And that means What are the projects being quoted that could potentially close six months, 12 months, 18 months out? And what are the skill sets I need 
to be successful with those projects. And that's where, you know, if you see you've released a new analytics product or it's on the roadmap and they're pre-selling it or you're making a foray into retail or financial services or healthcare, you've got a year's notice that you need to start recruiting some consultants with expertise because the worst scenario is you start closing these deals you don't have enough resources or the right resources, and then you end up with backlog. And let me tell you, if you want a a customer that's going to be a long-term renewing customer, telling them they just went through a a year's sales cycle, they paid you, and now you're telling them it's going to be six months before you can implement, (laughs) boy, you're you're doomed from... From the, yep. from the beginning. Yep. So um, I'm hoping mm-hmm. that uh, companies are going to leverage their PSA platforms to get a better look at what's coming down uh, the pipeline and get a really advanced look at where their resources need to be a year from now. And that's going to push them to start identifying some new approaches to bringing in the right workers with the right skill set and the right locations, uh, because I don't believe they're going to be able to scale up with the old models. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on, John. And something that we've seen certainly a, a big uptick in with the conversations we have is, you know, our traditional integrations with Mavenlink would be, you know, CRM and finance system. But actually, it's now the applicant tracking systems and, and, and the people systems to say our sales pipeline tells us that we're going to probably need these skills in six months time. And we don't want to be asking for them when the deal closes. We want to be you know, starting to search for them when our, you know, our, our early stage sales pipeline tells us we're probably going to need this. And that we're seeing a lot more of those conversations happen as well. So I feel like that kind of, you know, resource forecasting and and the intelligence behind it is really in, in more demand than ever. That's a really interesting point. So, John, just to kind of wrap us up here, talk us through what are the the final points you'd like uh, our listeners and and anybody listening to this podcast to take away? You know, what are the key things that, uh, you know, key messages you want um, you want people to take away from this? Change is hard, but it is inevitable. And the companies that are the Mm -hmm. most open to change tend to be the most successful companies long term. So this concept of a liquid workforce or a gig economy, it's the way younger workers want to engage. And it's really the only way you're going to scale your operation. So, you know, if you aren't doing this today, I think you really, really need to find a way to get started. And if this is a new concept for you and you're trying to figure out where to start. If you aren't focused today on moving away from those custom projects to creating these fixed price repeatable projects, you need to start today. And if you're offering those fixed price repeatable projects and you're not capturing best practices and lessons learned every time uh, to make the the project easier and easier for future consultants that's something else that you know you're going to have to start that that practice and if you haven't done any investigation into these digital talent platforms you really should have a chat with your hr organization hopefully they uh, have some that they're already working with they can investigate some options hand them a, a list of the perfect employee profile for the consultants you think you're going to need a year from now and let them send them to some of these options and see how many uh, folks they have in their network already. Uh, You can understand what the pricing would be for that, that kind of talent. 
ask. So even if you aren't doing this today, I would say work with HR to figure out how you can leverage uh, this approach in the future because sooner or later you're going to have to. And my final point, which we talked about quite a bit, is if you don't have a knowledge-sharing collaborative culture, you're ultimately not going to succeed with remote employees, mm -hmm. with gig workers, ultimately even with customers. So uh, if this has not been a focus for your organization, uh, and it hasn't necessarily been in professional services, you know, for years we've been rewarding this cowboy mentality of I'm the only one that knows something, and that's why I have high utilization hmm. rate, and I get all the premier projects and the biggest bonus checks. And if that is your culture, it is a dying culture. Look yeah. at the needs of the younger workers and start capturing and sharing knowledge and enabling collaboration. Yeah, yeah. John, I, f I feel like life lessons as much as business lessons there. There's some fa fascinating insights that you gave us there. Thank you for that. You know, and John, uh, thank you so much for being on, on the, uh, the show today on the podcast. We're really grateful to have you. W what would be your kind of final call to action? Where can people find you? How can they engage with you? What's the best way to get in touch and learn more from you and your organization? Well, go to TSIA.com. Uh, we have a lot of our research uh, that is available to the public. So if you're not a member, you can get a taste. Uh, I do uh, 50 webinars a year. So just about every Thursday, uh, I'm doing a, a live webinar on some technology-related topics. So uh, check out the schedule for what's coming up. And we've also got a huge list of on-demand topics. And this topic has come up a few times. So check us out, and uh, hopefully I'll see you and uh, some of our listeners in Las Vegas in a few weeks. Fantastic. I can't wait. Amazing stuff. John, thank you again for, for coming on the show today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. It was great to be here. All right. Well, as always, please feel free to reach out to us, podcast at mavenlink.com. Follow us on LinkedIn. Head to our website, mavenlink.com, with any follow-up questions or suggestions for future episodes. Uh, if you'd like to read the research report that Mavenlink has put together, uh, we'll actually be adding that to the show notes, but you'll be able to find that on mavenlink.com as well, the changing face of the modern workforce. John, thank you once again for being on the show. I really appreciate your time, and we'll speak to you all very soon. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know by giving the show a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and leaving a comment. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, you can do so anywhere you get your podcast on any podcast app. And to learn more about the transformative power of Mavenlink, go to mavenlink.com. Thank you for listening.